time for swordplay. Alex, a three-year-old boy, was lost in the woods for two days. Good news. They found him. He says a bear looked after him, and his aunt says that God sent the bear to protect him. Wow, Nick. Do you know what this means? This opens up a whole new world of possibilities for babysitters now. I mean, if I want to take my wife out to eat, I can just pray, open my door, and assume that the first animal to come inside is our God-sent babysitter for the night. Sweet! Hey, how much do you think a grizzly charges per hour? Well, it depends on if it's Smokey or Yogi, I guess. Um, Oh! (laughs) Hey, first, we are glad that little Casey Hathaway was found. That's awesome news. It's an awesome story, yep. We're just making a joke. This this is (laughs) Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. I'm Alex Flood. I'm an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in very cold St. Paul, Minnesota. And on this special edition of Swordplay, this is actually going to be part two of our discussion on Colossians chapter one. That's right. So enjoy the rest of the study. Well, I lost my spot. Where are we? (laughs) Verse 14, we're talking about redemption. Okay. I'll let you take that one, Nick. What is redemption? (laughs) Well, so there are always three key elements involved in redemption. Um, You have the property, which is the thing that you're redeeming. You have the purchaser, the one who's doing the redeeming. And then you have the price tag, which is the redemption value. Um. It was a vivid example of redemption several years ago, which made headline news. You may remember when Sergeant Bo Bergdahl was released from his Taliban captors. For five of our detainees from Guantanamo Bay, all of them Taliban members, Sergeant Bergdahl was released. You could say that we redeemed Sergeant Bergdahl at the price of five Taliban detainees. Now, good or good idea, bad idea, um, that's debatable, but the idea of redemption is there in the Bergdahl uh, account. Um, in fact, one definition for redemption was the price necessary to secure POWs. Uh, and so we are in a spiritual war. The spiritual forces of darkness take no prisoners. We were once spiritual POWs. We sold ourselves into slavery to sin. We were under the domain of darkness. But Jesus Christ steps into the slave marketplace of the world in order to buy us back from slavery to sin and redeem us to himself to become slaves of righteousness. Hmm. That's the gospel, what's at the heart of the gospel, and especially what's at the heart of redemption. I think that's Uh, right, yeah. Yeah, what do you think? Man, well said delivered us from the domain of darkness, bought us back from these evil spiritual beings. You know, we have these uh, words and these next few verses coming up. Makes me think, you know, who are these beings? Maybe Paul will tell us. That's a powerful example of the Guantanamo Bay swap. Very powerful. Well, Nick, we do have a section here in verses 15 through 18 um, that some have said resembles perhaps a poem or an early church hymn? What do you think? Yeah, I think uh, I think it is a hymn, uh, an early church hymn song that they would have sang. Probably not our 
typical way of thinking of a hymn as you know something sung in the church probably was though uh, or at least it's possible but it is it looks poetic like four-part harmony to me nick i don't know yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> that's right um it's poetic it's uh, uh it's didactic lyric it's a song intended to teach um intended to capture the lordship of jesus does that make sense yeah i think that should be a commission that we should give out right now to our songwriters in the audience put this passage to music and we'll play it on the air we want to hear it yeah that's right we can't pay you but (laughs) (laughs) you'll be rewarded uh in heaven so nick verse 15 then we're jumping into this section Mm -hmm. what does it mean that christ is the image of the invisible god verse 15 this means Jesus is the exact likeness, the perfect representation of God. When we look at Jesus, we see God. And that's essentially what he says in the Gospels, John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. You've seen me, you've seen the Father, he says. Um, the present tense, he is the image of the invisible God. That suggests that he has always been the uh, this has always been the essential character of the Son. Mm. Before he took flesh, in the days of his flesh, in his glorified state, approximately 30 years after his death, burial, and resurrection, when Paul was writing this, even to today, he is the image of the invisible God. Mm, good catch. Present tense, reflecting who he is. That's very good. Amen to that. This kind of reminds me, a little bit of something we talked about in various other podcasts called the two powers in heaven doctrine. Um, Before the rise of Christianity, the Jews believed that Yahweh existed in two forms. He was one Yahweh, but he existed in two forms, one visible, one invisible. And the visible Yahweh would then explain in their teaching all the times that we see a theophany in the Old Testament. So that's an appearing of God in the flesh to people. People would see him or talk to him or have a meal with him. Now, Christians easily saw this visible Yahweh then, uh, sometimes in the Old Testament called the angel of Yahweh, as actually being the pre-incarnate Jesus. Now, this led to the swift disavowing of the two powers doctrine among the unbelieving Jews of the first and second century. Now, perhaps Paul is making another poke in the eye to the Jewish mysticism folks here yeah all right well nick what do we have next talk to me about verse 15 the second part of verse 15 how um, paul says that jesus is the firstborn of all creation that obviously means that jesus is a created being right alex ah hold on a second there (laughs) (laughs) firstborn can also mean preeminent without meaning the literal first thing born or created Right. A good example of this is in Genesis chapter 48, verses 8 through 21. This is where Jacob gives the greater blessing of the firstborn with his right hand to Ephraim, even though his brother Manasseh was the actual firstborn. In fact, Ephraim and Manasseh's father, Joseph, tries to correct Jacob, and Jacob refuses for this to be corrected. He says the younger will be the greater, and thus he'll get the blessing of the firstborn. Now, this This might be the explanation for Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 7 through 9, specifically verse 9, where it says God, that that God is the father of Israel and that Ephraim is his firstborn. Well, Ephraim was not the firstborn by birth in any way, shape, or form. Preeminence is the idea. So, Nick, is Jesus a created being? No, absolutely (laughs) not. (laughs) 
such heretical garbage. Um, Christ, and by the way, if you want, um, if you want an excurs an excursus on this, um, on my private uh, blog, um, not secret secret wordpress.com, I actually have posted my. I did a research paper on. Arius and Arianism and how they were the ancient Jehovah's Witnesses of their day who said Jesus was a created being. Um, it's all there. You can read it. it. That's that's the extended version. Here's the brief version. And you, when you said that was not secretsecret.com. Not dot secretsecret wordpress oh, com. Not secretsecret.wordpress.com. Yeah. I'll have to and, I'll have to throw that in the uh, description here for the listeners to check out. Uh, yeah, I'll get. I'll send you the link so we can post it for the for the actual. Uh, it's a research paper. And listen, Christ is not the first creation. Contrary to what our Jehovah's Witness friends say, um, some try to make it read this way. That's that simply is not the case. Just as you were saying, Alex, firstborn means uh, preeminent. It means supreme, superior, first place, tops. That's why we sing. Sometimes we place you in the highest place. It's that's what we're communicating. Even the immediate context indicates that the word "firstborn" does not mean first thing. Um, just a few verses later, yeah, verse eighteen: "Firstborn from the dead." Christ was not the first bo- first person who came back from the dead, and yet he's still called the firstborn. That must it must mean something else. There were what, uh, three resurrections in the Old Testament and then three during his ministry. So you have six before Jesus even shows up and is resurrected himself. It just simply will not work. It's not a, a good way of understanding firstborn of all creation. And this is a good example, I think, Nick, of making a contextual argument because you can't just look at a word and say it means this and therefore it always means this every time it's used. That's That's just not how languages work. It's not how the Greek language works. It's not how English works. It's not how any language works. A word has a definition, but it also has a contextual use. And we have to use the contextual scenario to make sense out of the meaning of that word. And so I think here, like you said, there are other things in this text that don't fit the first created thing who then went on to create everything else idea that our Jehovah's Witness friends have. Reminds me of what our good friend Hank Hanegraaff uh, says. He says, words are equivocal, not you, uh, you, univocal. There it is. There you go. <laughs> Whatever that means. Anyway, <laughs> verse 16, Alex. Um, he, Paul, is writing about things, Jesus, he created things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Um, why the contrast here between heaven and earth, visible and invisible? You know, why maybe is a, is a trickier question, but I will tell you that this reminds me of Jesus' prayer when he says, uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, there's an idea in the, in the ancient world being, and I think it's biblical, being that before things happen in the physical realm, first something happens in the spirit realm. There, now, how you parse that out is, is dependent on your belief system. Now, there are spiritual powers behind earthly powers. We know this. In the book of Daniel, we see a prince of Persia who does battle with archangels. Uh, that was not the earthly prince of Persia. Here's the thing. To conquer evil, battles must be won in the heavenly realms as well as the earthly realm. And thus, Christ first conquered the spiritual beings in the next verse that we're going to talk about. 
They are, after all, created beings, but Jesus is the creator. So these spiritual beings are, in my view, we'll get into it, they're apparently in rebellion, at least some of them are, though uh, they were not created for such a reason. They were apparently created for Christ, his, their creator. So we'll get into that, Nick. Any ideas why you think there's a contrast between heaven and earth, visible and invisible here? I see here Paul just emphasizing the point. He makes it twice in this verse, through Christ all things were created. So whatever can be seen, everything that cannot be seen, it's just he's essentially saying these are phrases to communicate Christ made everything. Sun, moon, stars, land, sea, as well as souls and angels. It's just uh, kind of a catch-all for that. Um, You asked for it. You got it, Alex. (laughs) Verse 16 um, what are the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities? The thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. Okay. Thrones in the Greek is thronos, dominions, curiotes, rulers, arche, authorities, exousia. Okay, these words, they're used in different ways, different contexts, but I think that they are speaking about spiritual beings. So just keep in mind a few things, okay? Colossians chapter 2, verse 15 says that the rulers and authorities were disarmed by the cross of Christ. Not Rome, not the Jews, but I think spiritual rulers and authorities. That's what makes sense. This must be what Jesus meant in the Great Commission when he says all authority in heaven and earth, see that contrast again, heaven and earth, has been given to me because he first had to disarm the current rulers and authorities. Uh, when did that happen? It happened at the cross. So who are these rulers and authorities? Uh, these are probably, Nick, the gods of the nations whom Yahweh handed the world over to at the Tower of Babel. If you think about it, the Great Commission is the beginning of reversing Babel. You can think um, of other gods, if you want, as rebellious angels, if that helps you to put together this construct. Now, Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, it parallels a few passages in Ephesians as well, like Ephesians chapter 1, verse 21, where it says Christ is placed above all rule and authority and power and dominion in the heavenly realms, as well as chapter 3, verse 10, where it says the manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Chapter 6, verse 12 says our spiritual, our struggles not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, powers, world forces of darkness, spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly realms. Now let all this enlighten, especially the uh, the promise in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, where it says, neither death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Bring that back to our earlier questions with the love of God actually being the the true knowledge, the epigenosis that we are filled with from God. All of this, I think, really has constructs that it's clinging to as far as the supernatural worldview that they have, that the Bible has that uh, I believe is, is, is right. What do you think, Nick? I don't know. It's, I mean, it's a lot there. Don't want to spend hours on it, but I just want to introduce some of those things to the audience. What do you think? Yeah, there, there are three major... Um, interpretive views concerning these. Um, one, it could be human governmental powers. Could be. Um, could be the angelic spiritual powers, or it could be a mixture of the both. Um, 
so some connect with the uh, earth and the visible. Uh, others connect with uh, heaven and invisible. So um, there's that. Given the occasion of the book and everything that we have been talking about thus far, I'm inclined to see here the spiritual powers, the angelic beings. The four terms that are used here then just become a catch-all for describing the hierarchies of these beings, both good and bad. The actual breakdown of these classes, kind of, it's, it's unknown. Um, and I know we, I know with the good guys, we have archangels, which seem to be above just your average angel. But uh, anything really beyond that, I mean, it's kind of speculative, but that doesn't stop those folks from speculating about it. Anyway, <laughs> uh, that... That's my my take on it. So I think I think we're pretty well in agreement that this is these are these are spiritual power, spiritual beings. Yeah, yeah, and bringing them up, it's got to be connected to the purpose of the book somehow, right? Well, let's keep going. Let's see how this unpacks. Verse seventeen, Nick. How do all things hold together in Christ? It's kind of a metaphysical question. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> I, I like what one writer said about it. He said, uh, Christ sustains the universe in its actual operation. He sustains it. He, he's the one who, who makes sure everything goes the way. And it's easy for him, by the way. It's easy for him to do this. That's how powerful he is. You say? Yeah, I mean, Christ as the creator and not a created being himself. I mean, that's the thrust here. Um can I give you the metaphysical answer for how he holds all things together? No, but apparently he does, and that's because he's the creator. Now, remember, Paul is likely combating angel worshipers, worshiping things that are created beings. They might be powerful, they might be um, awe-inspiring, but they are created beings, and they are not on the same level or the same type of being that Christ is. And that's going to play into our next question, too, which this is all connected. Verse 18, Nick, then, how is Christ the beginning, the firstborn from the dead? What does that mean? Yeah, he is the beginner. Uh, he is he who is from the beginning, or from before the beginning, I should say. Um, not the first person. So let's talk about firstborn from the dead. Not the first person raised from the dead, or you address that. But he's the leader of the pack. He's at the head of the parade of those who've come back from the dead. Uh, and he's the one who leads the first fruits of the resurrection. So that's my take on those two phrases, you say? Well, some will say that Jesus was the first to be raised from the dead, who would then never die again, as opposed to, let's say, Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, but then died again. Uh, this works. That's okay. Uh, but this also goes hand in hand with his preeminence. And that's the contextual thrust. I see beginning here as the source of all things. He's the creator. I think the main difference here for, for us and our Jehovah's Witness friends is that they would see Christ as the creator and the source of all creation, but after he first was created by the Father. Right Now, that's forcing something into the text, in my opinion, and that really undermines Paul's argument for Jesus being the source and the beginning. Because if the Jehovah's Witnesses are right, then Jesus is not really those things. The Father alone is those things. He's the creator. He's the source of all creation. He's the beginning. And that leaves Jesus as just being the, the created being who just happens to be above other created beings. That would really weaken, Nick, the argument 
against angel worship because worshiping Jesus then would just be the worship of a created thing. It just happens that you believe this created being is higher than the other created beings. That argument, I don't think, would be powerful when dealing with these uh, Jewish mysticism folks or people worshiping angels because it's all just a bunch of created beings anyway. Separating Christ from creation is key to this argument for why he is preeminent. So you can't rightfully say he's the beginning and the source and the all these things if he himself had a beginning and source in the Father. If that was the case, then Paul would have known that and he would have been able to make that kind of argument. So that's what I think, Nick. What do you think? Well, right you are. No, that's thorough. Well, what do we have? Verse... What's next? Verse 18? Yep. Verse 18, uh, the last part of verse 18, that in everything he might be preeminent. Um, so, Alex, does Christ not already have first place in everything? Ah, very interesting. So, here's what I think. I think we have an already but not yet situation going on here. I would say he is first place preeminent in a legal and authoritative sense. Uh, by that, I mean he, he's the head of the church. He's, he's All authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. But now the kingdom must go and conquer. We need to conquer the domain of darkness to bring about the fullness of Christ's reign until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. By the way, 1 Corinthians 15.25 and Hebrews 10.13 both say that this has not happened yet. This is still unfolding. Christ is still making his enemies a footstool for his feet. It's the already, but not yet. There's a war to be won. What do you think, Nick? Uh, does he not already have first place and everything? No, he does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the resurrection saw to that. Uh, that's that's my take. And it, the firstborn from the dead, it flows right into that in everything. He might be preeminent. That's my take on it. Um, how about verse 19, I believe? This is going to bring us to our tough text. Tough text. For today. Because Paul, he kind of uh, gets somewhat technical or at least strategic in the word that he uses here because he starts talking about, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Fullness. What is the fullness? What difference does translation make? Okay. Well, I'll give a I'll give a go at it. Let's see. All right. Okay, commentators, as I've seen, are quick to connect this verse to Colossians chapter two, verse nine, sure, which says, uh, "For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form." Now, the whole translation thing. Back to verse nineteen. Mine says, "For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him." Uh, some translations will say, "For all the fullness of deity to dwell in him," and so. Um, in the text, though, it actually doesn't say the fathers. Um, the word deity is not in there, and it's not a it's not a bad connection to chapter two, verse nine. I just don't think it's the right connection. So here's my take. Um, I think Colossians one nineteen is actually trying to make a different point. I think using uh, Ephesians as my interpretive guide kind of helped me to to see it a different way. So when I look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 1, verse 23, chapter 4, verse 13, these point to the church as being the fullness in Christ. 
specifically the mature form of the church, which will reach its completion, I believe, in the resurrection. So we have this maturing going on right now. Something has changed, Nick, in the spiritual hierarchy. We in Christ are now elevated in the heavenly realms. Christ was raised as head over all things to the church. That's Ephesians 1.23, placing the church at his right hand in the heavenly places. So who the new sons of God are, replacing the old ones, these thrones, powers, dominions, and authorities, that will be revealed at the resurrection. Uh, we await, all of creation awaits the revealing of the sons of God, Romans 8, chapter, uh, verse 19. So I think the fullness here is not talking about Christ's deity. I think the fullness here is talking about the fullness of the church in Christ. So I think it's a, uh, talking about the church. What do you think, Nick? <clears throat> That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> in him all the fullness that God was pleased to dwell. Um, so here's here's let me back up and I'll I'll, I'll address the fullness question. What is the f- fullness? Um, the word itself, I believe, is uh, Paul um, doing a very strategic thing here. Um, he is, from my perspective. And I guess you could insert Jewish mysticism into all my Gnostic references here, but um, Paul is countering the pre-Gnostic and Gnostic junk that's going around the congregation. Um, the Gnostic idea of fullness had to do with every emanation of God, these spiritual eons which were separate from the world. In other words, the fullness was the sum of supernatural beings which control human affairs. Um, and they, the word that they had for that was fate. So these supernatural beings were in control of fate. So Paul says that Jesus is actually the totality of every possible emanation of God. Uh, he is every bit of God that God is. And so I think that's why the, the connection to 2.9 is, is made there for the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Um, but uh, so he came in the flesh, right? So what Paul is communicating here, what I'm seeing in the text is that Christ, he's communicating Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient for their salvation. They don't need all the other emanations and aeons and supernatural beings and all the Gnostic or mystic and all that, you don't need any of that because Christ is superior and he is sufficient as the fullness of God and the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. Well, hold on a second, Nick. Let me ask you something, though, because there's something you said that actually fits with what I said because um, in this, you know, Gnostic or mysticism context, uh, the... the, uh, Fullness is the sum of supernatural beings which control human affairs, right? These over these overarching rulers in the in the spiritual realm. Well, in Christ, that's us. Like we as Christians in Christ are going to be made the overarching rulers in the heavenly places. That's that's our role to come since we've been seated with Christ at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so that fits, I think, with what I was saying, too, about uh, basically our promotion along with the, uh, the demotion of the spiritual powers in place at the time. Yeah. 
here's the difference I think with what we're saying though is I don't necessarily see a replacement theology here a re- where or maybe it's better said a, a replacement um, ecclesiology or anything like that I, in other words Christ in and of himself is full he is the fullness um, you are right that there's something about us because he Paul talks about this in Ephesians uh, chapter 1 about how um, how we essentially, in some cosmic spiritual way, do serve as a uh, a completion for him, but that does not decrease his fullness. <laughs> no, no, it, that's yeah. It doesn't decrease his fullness. But okay, here's what Ephesians one says, verse twenty two and twenty three. And he right. put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his right. body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so there's something about Christ's grand scheme. We could call it the scheme of redemption. Uh, we could insert the theosis thing into that. We could call it our eschatology. You bring all this into the big picture, and God's plan for us, his sons of Christ through faith in Christ Jesus, inheritors of the promise of Abraham, we have a destination, and the destination is to be the ruling uh, people of the cosmos. So where there ruling authorities in the spiritual realm before, uh, yeah, there, there were, but now we're talked about as we're going to be the ones who are ruling. So I don't, that's, that's... We'll have to come back to this. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to come back to this. I don't listen. I don't disagree with you on the Ephesians part about how um, how we are the fullness. The church is the fullness. I'm not. I just don't think that's what he's saying here in Colossians one. I think that's my distinction without a difference. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we got verse twenty and twenty two. Then we have this word yeah, we do. called reconcile. Now, this is a tricky word, Nick. What does reconcile mean? So I'm going to do my best N.T. Wright interpretation here. Are you um, going to use an English accent? No, unfortunately, <laughs> I don't have a very good one. Um, but I want to talk about how the universe, because this is the way Wright talks about it, right? The universe crawling, was out of crawling. joint, and through <laughs> the cross, Christ reset the bone. Um, the universe was out of harmony with God because of sin. Christ, when he dies on the cross... He brings harmony out of that chaos in order to bring order back to the created order. Uh, so reconciliation then is Christ putting the wrongs back to rights. Um, he does this at an individual level uh, in us. He does it at a cosmic level um, in the universe, and he also it touches the spiritual realm um, as well. And so this is, uh, it, I mean, that's clear from what Paul says here, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So just a cosmic scope for reconciliation. Uh, what do you think? Right, right. I think that's brilliant, mate. That's, that's more Australian, isn't it? <laughs> Put another shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> what is that, Leon Morris coming through? <laughs> uh, okay, well, what you said is... I think also in line with my previous position in the last question. But this word reconcile, okay, in the Greek it's uh, apokotangaso. I don't know if I said that right. Apokotangaso, the double L makes it in G. Okay, it's only used here in Colossians 1, 
verse 20, verse 22, and Ephesians 2.16. That's it. Nowhere else. This makes the word challenging to define, uh, but I'll do my best to make a contextual argument. I basically take this to mean the setting of things right. So I agree with you on that. Same page. But the setting of things right from what? I actually have a more specific event in mind. I think it's the setting of things right from Babel. So at Babel, the nations are disinherited. And later, God takes Abraham, creates for himself a new nation, his inheritance. But in Christ, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16, the other verse where reconciled is used, makes the Jew and the Gentile, reconciles them back together into one new man. So that's something that was unknown in human history uh, since before the Tower of Babel. So in order to reconcile all peoples back into the kingdom of God, the domain of darkness needed to be stripped of their right to rule over the nations. Now this right was apparently possible because of the sin debt that was held by uh, those evil spiritual beings who, who had, because of the certificate of sin debt, right to rule over them the right to rule over humanity. But Christ, through the cross, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, cancels out that certificate of sin debt, cancels out that certificate of death, and thus that prepares the way for the reversal of Babel. And so I think reconciliation here has a, has a specific setting of right what was made wrong at Babel. What do you think? I... I would take it all the way back to Eden. That's that would be my starting place. But, well, I mean, yeah, that too. But since when do the nations need to be reconciled? Right. Sure. You know, sure. There weren't nations until Babel, so that's that's where I'm coming from with that. And then in verse twenty, he makes peace through his blood. What did he make peace, Nick? Well, it's the the three areas within the scope of reconciliation, right? It's the human world, it's the spirit world, it's the material world. Um, people, powers, and planet. Uh, so every area, every area that was touched by sin has now been touched by his death, the gospel, uh, and his grace. Uh, so uh, that's that's how he made peace and what he makes peace with. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And if it doesn't sound very peaceful in my house right now, I think it's one of my kids just got put in time out. So <laughs> you might hear kids screaming in the background. Okay, okay. what did he make peace? I think, if I'm going to stick with the trajectory I already set for myself in the previous question, it's peace between God and the nations from the fall of Babel. So bringing the nations into covenant peace alongside the Jews, which required in Christ the making of one new man. So that's the barrier that was broken down, and that's the peace that is made in Christ, the reversing of Babel. Well, Nick, another element, though, of the reconciliation here in verse 20 says things in heaven. Now, what things in heaven would need to be reconciled? What do you think? You know, we only get glimpses of this in the Bible. Um, Revelation 12 seems to symbolically describe when Satan led an angelic rebellion and then he with his cohorts were cast out of heaven and now their destiny destiny is fixed with no chance at renewal and presumably that's due to their rebellion in spite of full knowledge of seeing god face to face Mm -hmm. so 
how does reconciliation fit here? Well, um, they exercise limited power now in the world. Um, those four words, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, back in verse 16. Um, but Christ is going to end that someday. He will end it one day. Um, and that'll be the crushing blow uh, when, when the crushing blow of Christ's death will be applied fully and finally. I think that's how the heavenly reconciliation works. What do you think? Isn't there a verse that talks about uh, Satan knowing that his time is short, that it's that he's running out? Uh, yeah, somewhere in there. Yeah, I, I wish I would have remembered it before. Uh-huh. <laughs> but yeah, just this idea that those those rebellious beings in the heavenly realms uh, they have they have a timer uh, that's been set for them, and it's running out of time. They know their time is short. And that what Christ began at the cross, um, basically they're they're just bleeding out, and um, it's only a matter of time before they um, can can no longer exist with their fatal wound. Now, uh, to make right the rebellion in the heavenly realms, um, I think that's again you're on the right track there. I'm not sure if I have the same interpretation with you about Revelation 12 and the rebellion there, but putting that aside, um, there is a judgment that needs to take place against these other spiritual beings. I think that's what Psalm 82 is all about. Other podcasts we've talked about Psalm 82. By the way, if you uh, want to know what I'm talking about, read Psalm 82 from the English Standard Version. Uh, that's a better translation. Talks about God taking his counsel in the midst of the gods, um, these other spiritual beings, and he rakes them through the coals. And he basically says to these other spiritual beings that are called gods that he is going to judge them, that they're, uh, though they're gods, they're going to die like men. He's going to kill them. Um, they deserve uh, capital punishment, and all the nations will be reclaimed by Yahweh. That's the last part of Psalm 82. So this began with the stripping of power and authority from these beings through the cross. It will complete with their destruction at the resurrection. I like what you said about the full application of the crushing death blow that Christ will give them. Um, And that's also when we're going to be given our new bodies. And with those new bodies, I think we can fully flex our authority given by Christ. So in other words, they're fired. We're hired. We replace them. (laughs) (laughs) Um, By the way, that is Revelation 12, 12 about he knows that his time is short. Ah, ah. Good, good catch. Well, Nick, what else do we have? How about verse 23? Um, you got to continue in the faith. Um, if, so it's conditional, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable, steadfast, etc. Alex, how would one not continue in the faith? Well, I guess if they were not already predestined and saved, uh, in the Calvinistic uh, bad news framework. Right. <laughs> so, conditional statements like this fly in the face of predestination and Calvinism, that people are already chosen to be saved. It's just like, listen, if they're already chosen, there is no condition then that if they continue. It's a real prospect to lose your salvation. It's a real prospect to leave Christ, to leave the church, and to be pulled away into some other uh, evil thing. And that's what Paul constantly was fighting against. So how would one not continue in the faith? Listen, to pursue power and knowledge in an unauthorized manner, like some people I think here were doing in Colossae, that puts you back exactly where we started in the garden, eating another piece of fruit from the knowledge of good and evil. 
Listen, Satan will never stop using that trick. If we want to pursue power and knowledge in the heavenly realms that is authorized and worthy of the manner of the gospel, then that needs to be through service, loving service to each other, knowing and sharing the love of Christ with one another, being a humble servant. That's the path to true power and knowledge in the heavenly realms. All this other junk, it's just another lie from the devil to take another bite from the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, it's the the false teaching of the false teachers. It's And, and so uh, not continuing the faith would look like going after the false teachings and the false teachers. If you go and start pursuing the syncretism or a syncretistic course where you're trying to mix in all these different... It's Jesus plus anything else. That's the, the that'll really get hammered in, in chapter 2. Jesus plus anything else equals too much. All you need is, is Christ. You don't need to pursue all this other stuff that's out there. So, um, This will be the last thing we talk about today in this episode, verse 23. And it connects back to verse 6, which we I addressed. And now you're going to circle back around and give us your answer. How could the gospel be proclaimed in all of creation in the first century. My answer was it was hyperbole for the known world. Uh, the, that that's It's already gone out to uh, the whole Roman Empire. Uh, but what do you say, Alex? Okay. We're dying with suspense here. <laughs> People probably forgot that I even said that. It's it an hour and a half ago. <laughs> okay, how could the gospel be proclaimed in all of creation in the first century, right? Were there missionaries floating on boats to Australia and Antarctica and South America and all these places. Well, no, not not really. But um, there might be more than um, the Roman world going on, the known, the known world. So here's how this works. Romans chapter 10 has this uh, inter- interesting riff where he's like, hey, they haven't all heard, have they? You know, how are they going to hear without a preacher? Uh, how would they preach unless they're sent? That Just that is, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Then in verse 16, though, it says, However, uh, they did not all heed the good news, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. That verse is a big memory verse people like to quote from. But if you go on to verse 18, it says, But I say... Surely they have never heard, have they? Normally I would say, no, they're on Australia. Uh, <laughs> but Paul says, indeed, they have. Well, what do you mean, Paul? Why are, why are we sending missionaries if they have already heard, especially in the first century? What does Paul mean? He quotes Psalm 19, verse 4. It says, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Um, what is that talking about? If you go back to Psalm 19, uh, I'm going to flip there because I didn't memorize it. So Psalm 19, which is a psalm about creation, by the way. Here's what it says. Okay, it says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. What are you talking about? I thought it says it pours forth speech. It pours forth. What do you mean there are no words? Their voice is not heard. What are you talking about? I thought you just said their voice was heard. Verse 4, this is what Paul quotes. 
But instead of Paul saying their voice has gone out, this says their line has gone out through all the earth and the utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun. On and on about the sun. He's talking about the stars. Uh, that word for line in verse 4 uh, is the same word for ecliptic. You know, the zodiac, the stars, they all follow the ecliptic from east to west. And they circle around um, the star in the uh, center. That's the north star, Polaris. And so all of these stars, they circle around Polaris. Polaris acts as the throne of the cosmos that everybody circles around and worships in the zodiac. So what is going on here? I think what's going on here is, uh, I don't know if anybody, if you've ever heard of this or other people have ever heard of this, but the idea that people could get the heads up on the gospel through the zodiac, the gospel and the stars is what this is sometimes called. And so there are several uh, possibilities going on here. We have um, things happening in the sky that the magi were witnessing which brought their attention to the cosmic king coming to earth being born in flesh being king among men the magi come from the east to worship this king to pay homage to him how did they know what did they know what was happening what gave them that idea they were looking at stars magi sometimes translated wise men uh those were professional um astrologers those were they their job was to look up and interpret the stars, and this is not um, this is not tarot card reading. This is not the astrology in your newspaper that tells you whether you're going to have a good week or bad week. Uh, this is something different. This is using the stars for knowledge and information uh, about that that God sends to us, and so. This is there's an appropriate space for this and an inappropriate space for this. The appropriate space, I think, is in Genesis. It says God created the stars for signs and seasons and times. Those signs, I think, God communicates things uh, in different parts of history through the stars, but the constellations are set. So you have interpretations where you can read the zodiac as a gospel message. You know, there's the Virgo, the Virgin. Um, giving birth and then there's um, the celestial events that happened regarding the birth of Christ and you could even bring in Revelation 12 which talks about the birth of Christ and the if there's a celestial reading to be had there there are certain things that line up that point towards what people would have seen in the sky uh, before Christ was born and when Christ was born all this to say that Paul is saying that an element of the gospel was proclaimed in all of creation because the stars cover the whole world, whether it's the known world or the unknown world in their day. It didn't matter. The stars still cover all of creation. And through the stars, God placed certain signs in the sky for people to uh, interpret and know that he was sending a king to be ruler over all of creation. So that's, that's what I think he's talking about. I think he's saying that that's the proclamation of the gospel through all of creation. And line it up with Romans ten eighteen, saying they have all heard, but we need to be ministers of it to go out and give people the fullness of the message, help them to become a part of the mature, fullness body of Christ. What do you think, Nick? <clears throat> My only... <laughs> uh... My only uh, thing I'll say that I think I, I find a difference with what Paul is saying and what you're saying is, so 
you know, the, the, the stars um, are part of creation. And so what, how that has typically been classified is general revelation. So there's general revelation, which speaks to Psalm 19 is the key text for that. Um, that's the creation, the created order. People are supposed to look at it and say, hey, there's more than what meets the eye. There's, there must be a God who created all this. Um, but the gospel is special revelation, um, which is, you know, the word became flesh. It's particular um, as opposed to the general revelation of everything that's created. And I think that's the only the only difference I might have with, with what you're saying is um, Paul specifically mentions it's the gospel that's being proclaimed in all creation. Um, and seem, that seems to stand distinct from you know the the stars. That's just my my take after what you've put down. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. No, the, I mean you're right about general creation, right? General creation says uh, God has left his his uh, handiwork as a witness to uh, his existence, right? Go to Romans one for that, and people will suppress that knowledge with unrighteousness. So m- what I'm putting forward is the idea that the general revelation of God's creation, i.e. the stars, um, that had a specific element to it that would point to not just a creator, but the arrival of a cosmic king from heaven on earth. And that is the story of the Magi. So that that's, that's the, the... And that's how the proclamation could fit the entire world if we're talking not just hyperbole or the known uh, Roman world. Right. So, but it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't have uh, the same thing as the revealed like gospel message, which is why Paul says you still, he's still a minister of this gospel. He still has to go out and teach people. Right, right. right. No, yeah, that's... So it's yep. not sufficient in and of itself. It's incomplete. It just shows you that, yeah, the king came. Now who is he? <laughs> and so we send people out with good news. Uh, blessed are the feet of them who, who bring good news to tell you who that king is. So anyway, interesting stuff. Might be kind of wild. I don't know. Maybe it's a little too wild. But I thought I'd throw it out there just for people to think about. And do maybe they want to do some research on their own and look into that. But... Uh, we can't even we we can't even finish chapter one today. This is how thick <laughs> Colossians is, and I don't know if I can speak for Nick, but for me personally, this was the hardest podcast I've had to prepare for out of the uh, thirty. You know, this is the thirty-second episode we've done because it's so rich, it's so deep, and yet we're just talking about one of the shorter epistles, and yet here we are talking for. I mean, we're. We're not trying to be slow or wordy. <laughs> we're trying. We're trying to get through the material, but there is. It's such a, a rich depth here. We're trying to bring it out for you. That's our. That's our uh, goal here on the podcast. Nick, any final thoughts uh, before we um, end it for today? Pick up with uh, verse twenty-four next week. No, I think you've you've hit the nail on the head. It's just it's dense. That was the word that we started with today, and that's what we're going to finish with. I think it's just. So much in here, and um, uh, hopefully it's been a blessing to those who've heard. That's right. Um, until next time, uh, how about you go on to the Google Play Store or the uh, Apple iTunes Store, and you can 
Search Swordplay. You can find the podcast on there, uh, the episodes that we've done. Leave a review. Help us get the word out about it uh, as well. Yes, and quick correction. So one of our listeners uh, gave me a tip, and they said that uh, technically our por- our podcast is not in the Google Play Store because that's like an app store, but it's in Google Play Music. Uh. So go to Google Play Music and look for uh, Swordplay, and that's where the podcast will be. Or if you're in iTunes, uh, Swordplay does pop up in, in iTunes podcasts as well. And, uh, of course, shoot us any questions you have through swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. So, again, that email for you to send us questions to is swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And, uh, Nick, you mentioned your blog today, so we'll try to put that in the episode description. And any other thoughts for our audience before we uh, sign off for today? I think that'll do it. Okay. Well, thanks for tuning in again to another episode of Sword Platform.